I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. My mic is now on. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and our prayer tonight will be given by none other than Patty from Wisconsin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We ask right now that your spirit fall upon Salt Lake City, Utah. We thank you, Father, that your spirit can go across the whole United States. We thank you, Father, that your spirit will come and convict and turn the people's hearts, and we will repent for the sin, and that, Father God, we thank you that the word of God will go out tonight with power and resurrection power. And, Father God, we ask finally that we just ask your spirit to come and just scare the hell out of people so that they will desire you and you alone in jesus name amen amen come on over here and join me for a second patty and mike uh now i want i want you guys at home to to know i just i just met them and before patty said the prayer uh she said i don't even know what this is uh they came here with uh, patty and mike's daughter and her husband, who live here in Salt Lake City, let me come over here. This is good. You guys hold that. And uh, she, they just have no idea. We don't know what we're getting in. She just says, hey, watch out. You never know what I'm going to do. But she prayed beautifully from the heart, a woman who loves God with her husband. Tell us about your walk. Tell us about when you came to know the Lord. Tell us about how the Spirit moves in you. What's going on? Well, since I'm the mouth, and he's the brain. Yeah. Um, I've been saved 40 years in July. Wow. Walking with my God, talking mm. with my God, interceding, repenting, and just asking for revival for all these 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. So you were saved when you were two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and how did it happen in a nutshell? How, what, beside the spirit coming in and filling you, what happened? I tell you, I was at a church, listened to the Baptist preacher preaching. I cried like a baby at the age of 12. Oh. 
gave my age away. You did. And let me tell you, I've never been the same. And let me tell you, you can walk a path of holiness. Mm. You For really can. Mm. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. No compromise, only to him. And you will do great exploits, as Daniel says. Excellent. Anything from Mike? Mike She said Mike. it all. She said it all. She said it all. She is the mouth. She and, is. and he's the brain. And the brain. I notice you're wearing a Cabela-type uh, camouflage. camouflage. Uh, are you into hunting? We're into the Second Amendment. Ooh, okay. I knew we were going to get into something good here. <laughs> you're into, and th does camouflage go with belief in the Second Amendment? Uh, well, when Jesus said, sell your coat and buy a sword. Okay. We're All living right. in the last days, and All you right. never know what's going to happen. Okay. So, you know, I can be a pistol-packing patty, too. Woo! <laughs> Always excited here on Heart of the Matter. Thank you, my sister. Thank you, my brother. And thanks for bringing them, you guys, out there in the audience. Bye -bye. Will you hang that? Will you set that on that uh, baptismal? <laughs> Jedster, come up here really quickly. Where are you, Jed? Listen, last week... Um, we had our 500th show celebration. Most of the people, we were missing a couple because they're shy, and uh, most of the people were uh, up here, but Jed missed. And Sorry, Derek. And uh, Jed is an, I'm looking at a, a, a place that Jed built behind us. He put it together. Jed has been with the ministry for, uh, we've been with Jed forever. Uh, it's been a long, long time. My brother in Christ, uh, loved Jed to death, but he missed it. And I just wanted to pass the mic to you because we did this with everybody last week. Do you have anything to say to the audience, Jed? Hi. How you doing? Jed has decided to be uh, a comedian tonight. Uh, anything else besides hi and how you doing? Well, you know, everybody studies the Bible, and uh, I'm really happy about that. Um, God has a lot more to say to you than that, though, okay. if you just listen. All right. Talking about the Spirit working in you. Thanks yeah. so much, my brother. We love you. All right. One last thing before we get to the stuff for tonight. Uh, you know, you live and learn when you're in ministry. And I'm kind of, I'm not kind of, I'm quite the smart aleck. And I've, start, I've started to see that I'm, I'm going beyond smart alecky. And, and I might be hurting some people's feelings. And... Uh, and uh, telling jokes, you know, I mean them funny, but in our church, I sometimes do it. On the show, I do it. All in good fun till someone loses an eye sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I just want people to know that when I'm kidding around with people behind the stage, if I'm saying, hurry up, or if I'm saying, run when you do that, or our operators shouldn't be drinking before they get a, a here tonight, all of that stuff is completely totally just something that I've always done and it has no basis in reality and and I think that starts to get lost and then people kind of pick up on the vibe and then they might start getting mean with other people too and and, and so I just hope that uh, I can nip that in the bud change my mind repent over having gone that route and just kind of let's lighten that up so that we can continue in love, whether you're sitting at home watching or writing emails to us, or you show up here at church on Sunday, or you're here at live audience, whatever it is. Uh, just something I've learned, and I've had to change my perspective, and I just wanted to bring that out. We have a new book. 
that's out knife to a gunfight, misinterpreting the purpose and place of the New Testament. Uh, and we, uh, it kind of espouses the idea of we got to stop beating each other up and dividing over the content, over the minutia. And uh, it's called Knife to a Gunfight, available at hotm.tv. And with that, why don't we go to our board of direction? So uh, if I ever had the opportunity to open up a Christian school, it's been a dream of mine to kind of have a Christian school, more like a Christian college. But it costs millions of dollars typically, and uh, we don't have that. But if I was ever able to open up a Christian school, I would call it the flawed uh, school of Christian reason. And I know that would really be a mouthful, and I doubt we'd have anybody show up. But um, pretty odd. Why flawed? And I am telling you, this is how it happened. I sat there thinking one day, what would be the things I would really want to impart to the kids or to the college students who came to the flawed school of Christian reason? And the first thing that came to my mind was, and, uh, was faith. So I thought, yeah, we want to impart faith. This is like the first uh, basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of a Christian walk, is faith, right? And so then I thought, what's the next thing we always talk about at campus? The Christians are known for their faith and their love. And so this is where the acronym came from. It came from my sitting there and thinking, what would be the things that I would want to base a school on? And then I thought, you know, I'd also like to base it on art. The reason I love art is because I think there's not many places for Christian artists. I don't think Christian artists are very well assimilated into the body often. And I think they're kind of a misguided. So I think art is really important. And, uh, and then I would try to impart work ethic. And then I would, of course, base it on education. And then the last one I thought of is dimension. Now, I didn't come up with flawed first. Uh, what I did was I came up with what I would, would like to uh, start a Christian school on. And I thought of these attributes. And after I came up with them, I said, it spells flawed. And, and so it's really, to me, a great answer to our state as human beings in a flawed state. That we, we have faith and we have love and we have ex honest expression without guile. And we have a good work ethic and we have devotion and we have education and then we have dimension. So the interesting thing was, then I went and I started looking at scripture. And I said, what's a scripture that will tell me about faith? And I, for, so we got Ephesians 2.8, of course. For by grace you are saved through faith. So that would be the scripture that would go with the F. And then of love, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then when it comes to art, there's a great passage where God says in uh, Exodus, I have put my spirit in, and he names the guy, to have all manner. He has the spirit of the Lord to create all things in brass and in stone for my temple. I have put my spirit in him to give him that creative bent. And then we go to uh, 
uh, wor uh, the work ethic, and we have now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So that would be the passage that goes with work. And then education, study to show thyself approved before God, a workman needeth not be ashamed. And then I thought dimension. What's the greatest passage to talk about dimension? And I came up with Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. I've written it out on the board. And that says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with the saints all that the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ with past his knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And that talks about dimension. And then as I thought that's a great passage to use for this D, and then as I read it, I was blown away. I called uh, my wife and I, I was blown away. And let me tell you why. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. There's the F. And that, that you be rooted and grounded in love. There's the L. And that you be able to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. There is the art because we work in dimensions when we're working with art. And to know the love of Christ, which was manifested to me, I'm sorry, by work, by the work of love. That's how it was manifested. So we have the labor, which passes knowledge, passes knowledge, so there's education, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. There is dimension. All in that final anchor uh, passage of scripture. People often say, well, you know, where do you get the, how do you interpret scripture? When does this stuff open to you? To me, that's how it works. When I teach, I, you read, and you just have these things come out. And to me, that's the flawed system. That is the system that we go by to try to walk the Christian walk. We walk in faith. We walk in love. We express ourselves in the way God has created us and gifted us. We labor in love. We, we study to show ourselves approved in order that we might be fully the fullness of God, have the full dimension of him. All right, let's knock that one out and get to our subject tonight, which is pre-mortal existence part two. Let me take a quick drink here. Just water. Oh, we're talking about the pre-mortal existence from both an LDS and from a Christian perspective. That's what we've been doing this year. There are a number of facets regarding the LDS view of what they call the pre-mortal existence. They include the makeup or ontology of God. They include the makeup or ontology of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, uh, Satan. All of that plays into how the LDS talk and think about the pre-mortal existence. But in order to gain a better picture of this belief, I think it's necessary to look at the various views on soul, S-O-U-L, the suke in the Greek, uh, from both the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective, and then from the LDS perspective. Now, it appears that even today, uh, there are, is great confusion about the soul of man even among biblical scholars, let alone us people down here in the trenches. We go to the Old Testament in Genesis, and we find Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground 
breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. From this description, it seems like there was clay that was inanimate. God breathed his breath into the clay, and a living soul was developed or created at that point, or from the meeting of the inanimate clay with the Spirit of God. Those two meeting created soul. Judeo-Christian teachings regarding the soul of man have, like many other things in our faith, developed over time. Um, and the earliest Old Testament writings, they really don't give us much indication of there being a soul or a spirit in man that is separate from his body or her body. Now, I know today when we think of it, we think when I die, my soul is going to go to heaven. That's me, except without the body, it's going to heaven. But in the Old Testament, that construct wasn't really uh, set firm. Dr. Everett um, Ferguson, he's a distinguished scholar at the residence of Abilene Christian University, says in his book, Backgrounds in Christianity, pages 334 to 335, quote, the familiar dichotomy in Western thought between body and soul is a product of Platonic tradition. That means it comes from the Greeks. They are the ones who gave us the idea that the soul is a separate entity from the human body and spirit. He says, and that from the biblical perspective, they should have never been separated. So in the Old Testament times, in the biblical tradition, the soul of man was inextricably connected to the body and, and they should have never been separated. And the separation came through the Greek, the Platonic influence upon uh, uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian ethic or thought. So right here we can see that the LDS view, which we talked about last week, that we, all had, we were all spirits in the pre-existence and we came down here to our end onto earth with those spirits. And when we die, those spirits will go back to God. Uh, uh, that is completely unfounded in terms of the Old Testament narrative. There was no idea of that. Um, thinking of them as dual beings composed both of body and spirit. In fact, the Old Testament view of life seems to have been that alive things breathe and things that don't breathe are not alive. That's the way that pretty much if you talk to a, a Jewish scholar, a Jewish rabbi, Orthodox, and talk about that soul, they'll say, that's how we've always seen it, that if you are breathing, you have life. If you are not breathing, you are not alive. You are not alive. In the Genesis account of the creation, man, it, it seems like it's the breath of God that animates that clay. If we jump back to the book of Ezekiel, we are provided with a similar view. You probably remember the valley of dried bones. And in the valley of dried bones, the bones at one point were also covered in sinew and flesh, but they didn't live. And they don't come back to life until the breath or the wind or the pneuma in the Septuagint translation, the pneuma, the breath of God, passes over them and brings them to life. That prior to the breath of God, those sinews and that flesh had no animation and had no existence. The Catholic view found in the Catholic Encyclopedia says, 
since God is the life giver, life breath comes from him, and man lives as long as God's breath remains in him. End quote. Job speaks of this idea in Job 27.3 where he says, All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. That's what he talks about. Isaiah 42.5 says, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and that which comes out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk thereon. So in the Old Testament, we have that idea that it's God's breath that gives us the animation, not our own separate soul that will then go to God and exist with him that didn't, again, didn't exist in their minds. Zechariah 12.1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. End quote. So, again, it's maybe we're starting to get some advancement here in thought in Zechariah because that book came later. And maybe the idea was God breathed into man into the clay and in there the spirit of that man in the terms of becoming a soul is, is created. And it, it lends to that. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. That's all he says. Uh, he doesn't say, and the soul of the man will return to God, and the soul will go to Hades or Sheol. Uh, he says, the spirit shall return to God who gave it. So, additionally, I'm not going to read them, but Isaiah 57, 6, and Job 7, 11, and Isaiah 26, 9, they all intermingle spirit and soul together. And so it's sometimes, that's why there's confusion. People wonder, well, what's the spirit and what's the soul? It's because way back in, in, in uh, Judaic times, there really wasn't a differentiation. Long story short, throughout the Old Testament, there's some exceptions to this, but throughout most of the Old Testament, there was no spirit or soul that was distinct entity coexisting uh, in the body, but there was simply the spirit of God. Charles Harrell says, quote, for the ancient Hebrews, breath was life. Breath was life. Okay? So, uh, when God calls his spirit back, the thought was the soul dies. And the body, too, was void of that life-giving spirit. So the body was dead, too. That's how they originally saw it. Again, according to Kaufman Kohler, Isaac Broyd, and Ludwig Blau of the Jewish Encyclopedia, quote, Listen, only through the contact of the Jews with Persian and Greek thought did the idea of a disembodied soul having its own individuality take root in Judaism. So, I mean, today, well, we'll get into this uh, we're, before we get to the phones. The idea, find their expression then late, in later books of the Bible. For instance, uh, Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Job 32, 8 says, There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So in the later books, in the later writings of Judaism, because of the connection to the Persian and Greek thought, the Jews started to incorporate this idea that there's something in us 
that, is indiv that individuates the individual and is partly who we are, and that goes to God and lives in its continued existence without a body, okay? So, um, but Harold points out, even in these isolated verses, it isn't entirely clear what a spirit consists of and whether it has meaningful existence independent of a physical frame. In the New Testament, there isn't much instruction that would alter the standard view uh, that the Jews had uh, when it came to an independent soul in each man. Uh, that being said, there are some insightful passages that do suggest that man is constructed, and this is the first time we hear of this, it's in the New Testament, of different parts. Uh, for instance, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there Paul differentiates between the pneuma, spirit, the soul, suke, and the body, sarks. And, and he says those three, and he mentions them independently, telling us there's three parts here now. But it, the Jews didn't have that. And then you know the all-familiar Hebrews 4, 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Dividing soul and spirit. And the joints and marrow and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Dutch theologian G.C. Burkauer writes, quote, A fairly generous consent, excuse me, a fairly general consensus of opinion among theologians that, quote, no part of man is emphasized in the Bible as independent of the other parts, not because the various parts are not important, but because the Word of God is concerned precisely with the whole of man in relation to God. And so what Burkauer says there is, listen, the Bible, as it starts to narrow in and even divide up spirit, soul, and body, doesn't do it much why? Because God is concerned with man in his state in the flesh, in his state in the soul, in the state in the spirit, and, doesn't and, and, and the, they don't divide it up much because God wants to work with the whole of us instead of the parts. Quite frankly, in the Old and New Testament, the terms spirit, soul, heart, and mind are often interchanged, and so no precise meaning can really be found. By the time Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, took his first breath, Christians generally saw the human soul in the Platonic view, that it's a separate, distinct, individuated part of each of our personalities and persons. Again, this was a developed doctrine. Having said that, though, I completely embrace the development of the doctrine. And I have no issue with the human soul, suke, uh, which the Greeks de defined as mind, will, and emotion of each of us, that they would say that, the Greeks might say, well, when God breathed into the clay, man became the mind, gained his own mind, will, and emotion. And that that is what will go stand before God at judgment, uh, etc. And I don't think that the nation of Israel had all knowledge. I think that God revealed to them things as time went on that is absolutely manifest when we read the Old Testament compared to the New. And so we shouldn't expect to find all truths in the Old Testament. We're going to have more revelation given to us in the New. So with regard to the soul of man itself, there's two broad schools of thought. Okay, Talking about the soul, there's two broad schools of thought in classic Christianity. The first one is that 
the soul of man is immaterial, okay? That there is nothing about it that is material at all. Published in 1832, Buck Theological Dictionary defines spirit as, quote, that vital, immaterial, active substance or principle in man whereby he perceives, remembers, reasons, and wills. It is rather to be described to its operations rather than to be defined as to its essence. What that says is there's no substance at all to spirit or soul in man. Okay? But the rationalists of the Enlightenment repudiated this classic Christian idea and they said, listen, if you Christians are going to say that spirits are immaterial and there's nothing of substance to them, you're unscientific and you're irrational and you're stupid. So when you start doing that, you're going to lose our attention because everything is matter. And it was here that philosopher Thomas Hobbes penned his influential book, Leviathan. That was in 1651, by the way. And he argued that any speech referring to immaterial substance is without any meaning at all. Hobbes said, look it, if you're going to talk about uh, ethereal spirits and souls and stuff, you better start talking about them in terms of substance because everything is material and, uh, and there's no such thing as a non-corporeal nature of an angel or a man's soul. It's all material. This thinking was a giant step towards a materialist view of spiritual things. Now, I'm building up to something here, which in the uh, Age of the Enlightenment was a far more rational view than a world spiritual view that had uh, uh, made its way through the ages of uh, Christendom and Catholicism. Uh, so when S Joseph Smith came around, he ultimately embraced this materialist view of all spiritual things. And by the way, if Marx was a, a Christian, which he wasn't in the end of his life, uh, he would have also said spirit has to be material. He was the consummate materialist, and Mormons are also a consummate materialist too. So, so popular was this rationalist thinking among Christians that as early as 1650, Puritan writer Richard Baxter said, the soul is a substance for that which is nothing can do nothing. You hear how the reasoning is starting to come in? If it is nothing, then it can't do anything, so therefore it must be something. It must be material. It, and it is not flesh and bones that understand, but a pure substance. So this pure substance of the human soul was taught in 1650 by a Puritan writer. Okay, remember that. Jump out to the 1790s. British scientist, Unitarian theologian, uh, Joseph Priestley said, quote, the original and still prevailing idea concerning a solar spirit is that of a kind of attenuated aerial substance of a more subtle nature than gross bodies. What he's saying there in that quote is, all things, spirit included, soul of man is material. All right? I have long called Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, the consummate religious synthesizer because he took from everywhere and he amalgamated all that information into a system of theology that made a lot of sense to people from a reasonable, rational, rational view. And this is what he did with the, with the soul of man. Uh, when you start off in Mormonism, the classic idea was all, mis all spirits, souls, 
are immaterial, no substance to them. Then in 1833, a revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 93:29 notes a distinction between spirit, which was defined then as intelligences or light of truth, and element, which Smith defined as the physical tabernacle of the spirit. The physical tabernacle of the spirit. Two years later, in 1835, somebody wrote uh, that the, in the LDS mind, spirit was antithetical to matter. Then seven years later, in 1842, Joseph Smith announced for the first time a view that was in harmony with the uh, uh, authors of the Enlightenment, like Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan, etc. And he said, the spirit is substance, that it is material, but that it is more pure, elastic, and refined matter than the body. Okay, so he made the statement. He sided with the materialist view. A year later, borrowing directly from Hobbes and the Enlightenment, Smith corrected a Methodist minister and said the following, which is also in the Doctrine and Covenants. Quote, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. Okay, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy thought if you think about it. All spirit is matter, but it is far more refined and pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. At that point, Smith stepped from the classic Christian thought of spirit being immaterial and not of this world to everything being material. Everything. Therefore, as with many things in Christianity and with most things in Mormonism, Smith morphed his views over time and now spirit to Joseph Smith and the soul of man, what resides in every single person, is tangible. It's viewable if you have pure enough eyes. And, and from that, we will stop. We'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Next week, we'll continue talking about a pre-mortal existence, both in Christianity and in Mormonism, and show how they start to split apart and differ. Uh, while the operators are clearing your call, let's take a look at this. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people, and we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. Okay, uh, before we go to Mark in Alberta, Canada, uh, we have an off-air question from Christopher Green. 
I have my second meeting with two Mormon elders tomorrow at noon. What's a good way to express to them that Jesus is God and there is no eternal regression of God's? Well, I'll just give you off the top of my head, uh, Christopher, let me just give you a couple things. First of all, uh, you might, if you have the time, break down the term Elohim for them in the Old Testament and uh, that, how that just is the, the name of any God. It's just God or gods, really. And uh, how, how God of the Old Testament's name was not Elohim, and you can show that through Scripture. Uh, if you get online and you go to our uh, archives, you can see shows that will clearly describe that. Uh, that's one thing to bring up to them. Also, uh, because it will say Elohim is our Savior, Elohim is our Judge, Elohim is our this, and those attributes are only subscribed to Jesus in the New Testament. The other way is for Jesus, I mean, the classic one is Jesus says to the Jews, listen, if you don't believe that I am appealing to the name that Moses was given by God himself, you will die in your sin. If you don't believe that I am, and the I am is the self-existent, never created, always been one that is really even a term in the Hebrew that we can't define. It is so magnificent. So I might say to the missionaries, tell me, why did Jesus call himself the I am in Scripture? You also might look at Isaiah 9-5 where it, uh, it describes God there and it calls him... Um, uh, unto his child is born, unto his son is given, his wonderful counselor, the mighty, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And that passage is talking about Christ Jesus alone. And there's some other passages that you'd be able to use, but most of all, uh, I would challenge you to do this. Try to not get on these uh, rabbit trails of doctrinal stuff, but try to say to the missionaries, I just have one question for you. We can debate all day long, but I just want to know, have you been born again? That's an imperative by Jesus. You believe in rebirth. Your Book of Mormon talks about the mighty change. Have you been born again? And then to say, look it, I, I, I don't care, but here, do a, do, me a, do a favor. Go to God in prayer and just say, show me. Open my eyes to your truth. That's all I want. Will you take that challenge, elders? Will you give me eyes to see? Do you do that? Now, you're giving me a challenge to read the Book of Mormon, probably, and to ask God if it's not true, which is what it says in Moroni 10. Okay, I'll do that. But you, if, you're, if you sincerely go to God, say, all I want is for you to give me new eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to feel. And uh, that is something that if it might not happen when you first sit there, it may happen 20 years later, but God's word does not return void. And I believe if any of those young men will pray and ask God to open their eyes, God will do it and lives will be changed. Let's go to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Um, you know, when you're talking about uh, the, uh, the soul. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, and you had mentioned, I think it's one of your shows, or it could be getting a little mixed up, but we're, uh, we're Christ said that this is, his kingdom is not of this earth, and so we're citizens, of course, of heaven when we're born again. Yeah. And so what uh, really is our soul is being uh, in, 
in the, in the middle of the battlefield, if you will, because Satan is not interested in our flesh, even though it intertwines, I truly believe, because of addictions and things like that. Right. Or that nature. But uh, it, uh, he's really after our soul, just like when we're born again, that's where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us in our spirit. Yeah. And so that's where God gets to live in us. And so the soul is kind of the in-between guy, and, and it kind of likes its addictions and all that stuff. But then the good side comes out and pulls back towards it, and it's a big tug-of-war until we totally give ourselves to, to God, to, to the Lord. And then those things can dissipate away. Yeah, it's a really big, huge battle, and that, and it's it's a spiritual battle, and and not a fleshly one, because Satan is not. I mean, it does intertwine with the flesh. Don't get me wrong, but but um, we're 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 strictly uh, fighting, um, like in Ephesians when it talks about that, and that we're fighting principalities and yeah, whatnot. That's where the reality comes from, and. When we can come to grips on that, then our relationship with Christ becomes even better. Yeah, and you know, I love your uh, insight, Mark. Uh, As the New Testament unfolds, we begin to see what you're talking about is absolutely true. Even if the Jews didn't have a concept of soul, that doesn't, it's irrelevant to me. And what you're saying is so right because Paul talks about us, the renewing of our minds. And the Greeks define soul as mind, will, and emotion. And really all the battle is in the mind. It really is. And so if we renew our minds by the Spirit, uh, the battle over our soul connected to our body is won by that Spirit. So I love your insight. I really appreciate it. Okay, God bless. God bless you, brother. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Uh, we have a question here. What is it about Christians and Hollywood I can't, and Christian movies in general? Well, what I mean is like Christians trying to be actors and actresses as well as becoming directors what about Hollywood influence on some Christian films? You know, uh, I think there's a difference between a Christian being an actor and Christian actors. I think there's a difference between Christians uh, making films and Christian films. And so I have no issue uh, with either, really. But the problem uh, gets involved when we start to, uh, in my opinion, it's sort of, I, I don't mean to insult our friend Patty here, but it's sort of like when we mix our faith with politics, and it's like, this is a Christian senator. Uh, then, you know, the Democrat liberal uh, left wing will, will not hear anything else the good senator has to say because he has used his faith to get votes. So to me, I think that whatever you are in Christ, you are in Christ, and you do your job well. If you're a trash collector, you're, uh, you, know, you're, you, you happen to collect trash and you're a Christian. Not that you're a Christian trash collector. I just think there's a difference. Why do I make a point of that? Because I think it's really important that people um, see us in the best way possible so that they have a chance to want to have what we have. And if they see us dressed in anything else that might offend them, Christ suffers. So if they see us as a right-wing Republican, homosexual, hating, uh, whatever, Christ suffers because they're turned off by that facade rather than being turned on by Christ in us. 
and I, I've ardently uh, fought for that. I know it's, it's opposite of other people. I love the other people's views. They're fine. I, I, I get it. And I get that I could be the wrong one. But that's how I have always seen it. That's what our book, uh, If Then, is all about. That Jesus himself said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. And yet they're not going to do that. Hayden says, hi, Sean. Do you think it's okay for a Christian to date and maybe one day marry a non-Christian? I'm a bit confused on what the Bible really says on the subject. Well, I think you marry who you date. So I think you run into uh, trouble when you uh, uh, date uh, somebody who's a non-believer, there's an unequally yoked element there, so you run a bit of a risk. That being said, I know people who went against what I just mentioned and married somebody, and the Lord brought that person out. So, you know, it, we go by the Spirit. We don't go by laws. Because when you start using the law to govern everything you do, to me, you, you can run in difficulty. And I know plenty of people who have married in the faith and that has been a disaster for them too. Marriage, Jesus said, is of this world. The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. It's for this world. You want to have difficulty in, in, in this world in your marriage? Marry somebody you're unequally yoked with. But it's not like the LDS say it's going to go on afterward. Jesus says it's not there. Marriage is of this world according to him. Beverly says, Sean, are you familiar with the similarities between the Book of Mormon and the book, The Late War Between the United States and Britain. I've heard similarities, Beverly, but I don't know what they uh, are. Let's go to emails. Eugene, he's LDS, wrote, We are saved by grace after all that we can do. I am so sorry the concept of grace is not taught enough in LDS wards. However, it is not LDS members' place to judge. And he writes, Neither is it your place to judge, Mr. McCraney. We will all be judged by the one with authority to judge. I am LDS, and I am a sinner, but I am trying with all my might to be a worthy son of God and follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, my reply to him was, you're right. I have no right to judge another human being, and if and when I do, I'm sorry. However, we are to test all things. Your statement here should be tested. To be saved by grace after all that we can do is like saying to somebody, I have a great gift I'm going to give to you after you have worked for it. Therefore, it is not a gift. That person has worked for it, for the reception of it. So then, in, in the end, it's works that are actually contributing to your salvation, uh, Eugene. The statement is in conflict with the Word of God, so I judge it to be an error. If you want to believe this, you're free to do so. You have every right to even share the message like you have with me in this email, but I have the right, the obligation to share how wrong the teaching is relative to the Bible, how false the gospel it presents, and how much bondage it creates in the lives of good people just wanting to serve God. This concept I end the email with is so bad it causes good men to say things like, I am trying with all my might to be worthy, when in fact your worthiness, Eugene, comes by dying to him, not by trying to overcome your sinful flesh. So we have, uh, Beverly says, uh, it was a textbook in 1819. So maybe we'll get a hold of that sometime and see what the similarities are. Uh, this is, hello, Sean. I've been watching your stuff on YouTube. Uh, he goes on and says, I experienced the classic Zen enlightenment when I was about 12 years old. 
Uh, if you read uh, William James and the history, the varieties of religious experience, it'll blow your mind about how people of all different faiths uh, experience what he is calling Zen enlightenment at 12 years old. The Buddhists do, the Hindus do, the Muslims do, the Christians do. Uh, they have born-again experiences. Read the book. He spent his life doing research on it. Respected author. He wrote the book and just showed how people have these born-again experiences. And he says, uh, so maybe uh, I am who you speak to when you say it's not the works or the clothes or the words or the stories, but it's the Holy Spirit that saves us. Of course, I would add through Christ. He says, Sean, I was reborn that instant and have never felt alone and have always felt God's presence. Times have been dark. I have had struggles, but my faith has been there. The unconditional love, the knowing. My understanding is that early Christians did exchange ideas and discourse with Buddhists. And from this, the cross emerged from the lotus flower seems to symbolize these two set ideas. I have always uh, distrusted the yellow hat sect and organized Buddhism, especially after researching it. But he says he's had this spiritual enlightenment, and then he thanks the work that we're doing, etc. I have a good friend. He tells me uh, that his wife, he, brought, he met her, in. she was from Indonesia, and when they married, she was a Buddhist. And that he started teaching her about Jesus and sharing the Bible with her. Uh, she became a very good Christian, and she died re, uh, a few years ago as a very good Christian. But she said to him, uh, when she came to accept Christianity, I've always believed in this God. I just didn't know his name was Jesus. Now, I know it's a radical view, and it's very liberal, and people freak out on it, but I am convinced that God uses whatever is there to reach people, and everyone who is reached by him is reached because of Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that if they don't know it here, and they have followed God to the best of their ability in Kazakhstan as a Muslim, and they die, they'll say, it was, it was Jesus. I absolutely believe that God is reaching people, and sometimes it doesn't translate into the name, but it is certainly the person, and someday they will discover that. Uh, Richard writes, come as you are. I attended a church that said this for years. Come as you are. The part they didn't say was, come as you are and we'll fix you. Their an unannounced agenda was to discipline followers of Christ into an evangelical army, which was freaky for several reasons. One, the Great Commission was given to the remaining 11 disciples. Two, our only great charge is to believe and to love. Three, every word Jesus said indicates we're all going to be sinners. So gossip, innuendo, and backbiting, essential to political activities, became the daily bread of that organization. So while grace was preached, performance was the yardstick. While grace was preached, performance was the yardstick. Many new converts were immediately set to evangelical work and put sinners into the bondage of shame and guilt. And sermons used fractured pieces of scripture to allude to things that ultimately benefited the church budgets, beliefs, and operations. If you weren't at church, you were on the gossip menu. I found my soul at odds with that church, which was easily explained to me as a deficit of my soul. Mockingly, I heard in my mind, look at me, look at me, can you see the light? Unfortunately, I was left unilluminated. 
putting the law back on people is the sin of the Pharisees. Jesus called it. Making people more worthy of damnation than before. Using guilt, shame, and failure to keep uh, the law to manage the congregates uh, is causing them to become murderers. He goes on and talks about leaving that place and how happy he was for that. It, it's found all over. And uh, I'm not saying there aren't good churches out there and good pastors. There are. And they teach grace. And they show love. And unconditional long-suffering. But if you come to a place that is throwing law down upon you and is feeding its uh, system using sermons to feed the system, run. This is from Klaus Goren Olofsson. I want to tell you a story about myself. I'm from Sweden and I live in Gothenburg. And one day I got tinnitus in both ears and I prayed to God to help me. He's a Christian and the Mormon missionary showed up at his door and he was about to be baptized because they convinced him that uh, everything that they said was true. And then he got and he saw a YouTube video and he, when he, he said when he saw it, it shocked him. It woke him up. And it wasn't one of our videos, by the way. It was another one. He gives the link. It was actually a cartoon. And I confronted the missionaries about it, and they went completely silent. And after telling me the whole story, he says, why do you have a Swedish flag sometimes on your show? And if you watch the archives, we had a small Swedish flag. And the reason is, is because we have fans of the show in Sweden who sent me that little wooden flag, and we put it up on the set. And then uh, later, my daughter married a full-born, blooded, great Swede man. And now they have two Swedish sons, my grandsons, and so I have a heart for the Swedes, and uh, I don't know where that flag is, but if I had it, I'd put it up there too. Not as an allegiance to Sweden is my country, I'm an American, but just because it has sentimental value. Um, uh, this is from, I don't know who, uh, and oh, it makes a great point. Think about this. Her observance of being in the Mormon church 20 years Mormons are not nice people because they are Mormon. But Mormons are nice people because nice people like the structure of Mormonism. And if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense. That there's people who don't want to rock the boat. They want a stable life. They want to avoid drugs and alcohol and, and, and tobacco and coffee, clatches and stuff for their kids. They want to be part of a church that is, calls them brother and sister. They love, they love uh, the suit and tie. They love that order. And they're typically, you know, well serotonin people. And so they find Mormonism very appealing. I think that makes a lot of sense in my case because I have no serotonin. And I had a very difficult time assimilating into that structure. And so it was hard for me my whole life. My parents converted so that their children had structure. My parents wanted their family to be nice. And so I think nice people, when they find the church, they're, they're very, they're very, they don't like waves. They like to do things very nicely. And I think, uh, in essence, they have their reward, in my estimation. Uh, this is from Max. He says that Knife uh, to a Gunfight, Sorry for the Plug, has, uh, uh, is the best book we've put out. And he says, the ministry is the only place he's felt safe since being born again. And he knows there are many like him. He says, Derek, you, Seth, your daughters, and all the others who quietly serve have a larger impact on the world than you know. 
Please accept my heartfelt thanks for sharing and searching the truth. And we thank you, Max, for watching. Um, this person, uh, again, I don't have the name. Uh, he says, I'm a convert to the church. My wife has grown up Mormon, and the rest of her family is Mormon. And he says, how come when I bring up articles and questions about the Mormon church, they tend to start saying, how come you're looking at that? What are you looking for? You shouldn't read stuff like that on the internet about the church. If you want to find the answers about the church, go to the church. How come you find the answers that bring, uh, questions that bring out hostility and start seeing people in different ways? It's a great thing. And that's typically what happens when you start to question institutions. The finger is pointed at you for being the one who has fault. It doesn't matter what the institution is. When you challenge it, you're the one who has the problem. You're the one who's not seeing clearly. You're the one who has sin in your life if it's religion. And uh, so that's what they do to you. Uh, and then let's wrap it up with this. From Carlos, he says, I like the idea of God's will to reconcile us. However, if we're sent to the lake of fire for unbelief until we break from our stance, isn't that basically God forcing his will upon us? The idea is in total reconciliationism is that there is a hell, there is a lake of fire, the evil and the unfaithful, they will go there who haven't confessed Jesus and know Jesus, and that hell gives up its dead. The lake of fire was not created for man. It's in the presence of Jesus and his angels. And I suggest that after having lost what they build their lives upon, they will exit that place, come out a half person or a quarter person or a tenth of a person, and that's what their eternity will be, but they will be reconciled to God. The first premise to remember, Carlos, is that God wins. If you look at Calvinism, if you look at Arminianism, God does not win in either case uh, because he, he has selected in Calvinism only a few and the rest burn forever in screaming uh, hell because that's his will. And in Arminianism, he would like to save everybody, but he can't because of our free will. So both of those systems fail. The way I see it is God wins. And how does he get his victory? By his foreknowledge. And by his foreknowledge, he does elect and he does tell people, and he does move people to do what they're gonna do. Just like Jonah, God could not get Jonah to do what he wanted to do, so he caused Jonah to suffer. Jonah was in the belly of a whale. Jonah was sweating underneath a sunflower plant. Jonah was, and that's God, he's gonna win us, and he's going to have victory over us through our free will to receive his messages, or God is going to put the heat on us so badly we will wave the white flag. Is it God getting his will? It is. It is. But he will win. And we, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. With that, let's wrap up part of the matter tonight. Next week, we'll continue on, talk about pre-mortal existence. See you then. I'm on a ride. Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And 
I can feel the light-filled monkey star. 